This episode is brought to you by Not Alone Co. It has been such a pleasure for us at Not Alone Co. to create our little Not Alone community. We want to be able to utilize the messaging on our apparel in order to help facilitate tough and meaningful conversations with your loved ones. Community, conversation, and vulnerability. This is a journey and mental health isn't a battle to be won. We at Not Alone Co. are here to remind you that you are never alone and it's okay to not be okay. Use code NAC10 at checkout for 10% off your order, which helps us donate portions of the proceeds to various mental health charities and foundations. That's code NAC10 at checkout. We love you and you're not alone. Right, if it's not my question about the final musician that you would see, um, I love this question as well. You are, for some reason, about to not be here anymore, and you have a final table. You have four seats at the final table. Um, obviously, you're going to have a table with your family, but this is going to be a separate table on a separate evening where you can sit with four people in the entire world that can be whoever you want please now give out your four attendees riley shan yeah gosh without like thinking too deeply my answer could change i'm trying to think like from a musician standpoint i would love to like johnny cash or elvis or someone like just like that like from a long time ago Eminem. I'm going to go Johnny Cash and then I'll go like, like Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> like he's probably got a, he's probably got some crazy things to some crazy stories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Johnny Cash. I'm trying to think like an athlete, like Tiger would be super cool. Tiger's got to go in there. Trying to think, like, there's no one else really that's sticking out to me. I could do four musicians easily, though, just hear their stories. I'm gonna go Johnny yeah. Cash, Johnny Cash, maybe like Abraham Lincoln and Tiger Woods. That would be a friggin' dynamic. That would be a dynamic. <laughs> I'm gonna take Jesus out of the question. Um, that would be a dynamic conversation topic. Let me hear Talk yours. About- Talk about your Mount Rushmore. Wow. Um, (laughs) This is going to be one that nobody in the world could guess that I would be actively wanting him to sit at my table. I have a a large man crush on an individual by the name of Gordon Ramsay. Um, I put, well, I know, I know. I don't know what it is. Um, Growing up, my parents and I always watched Hell's Kitchen, little master, master chef, sprinkle that in there. I love the Food Network, um, but honestly, I'd honestly wouldn't mind Gordon screaming at me one time, just like calling me like a, a whatever his his terminology is that he likes to, you know. I, I wouldn't mind that. Although this conversation would obviously be fun and, and inviting, um, I would go Tiger as well. Um, you know, there may be some controversy. He's lived quite a quite an interesting life. Um, but I think even I just saw a video the other day of him caddying Charlie in this championship he's playing in. And I'm like, you know what? Tiger's at my final table. Um, athlete or uh, movie star. I think uh, like you got to go 
like oh, like well, I, like Will Ferrell. I was thinking Will Ferrell would be a really good one. But. Yeah, like I would chuck um, Danny DeVito or like Robert oh, wow. De Niro, like Robert De Niro, or uh, but then again, then I would chuck like Leo DiCaprio or Brad Pitt. Um, oh man, there's so know. many are coming to my head now too. <laughs> And as for musician, you, I feel like it's like a must. You have to chuck a musician in there. Um, mm-hmm. I think, like, the, I, I want to say Chad Kruger and Nickelback. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, or I would probably go, like, even a Frank Sinatra, Marilyn Monroe, yeah. an Elvis. Um, okay, you got to pick, you got to pick, would... you got to pick one, though. Okay, fine. Sorry. Okay, so Gordon Ramsay, Tiger Woods. Um, I'm going Danny DeVito, and I'm going oh, Elvis Presley. It's done. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I only, welcome everyone. I only picked three. <laughs> I didn't pick four. And I had a good one come to my head. I'm going Al Capone. Oh, wow. That is uh, out of left field, but that will <laughs> right, do. Let's go. Um, let's go. Let's jump into the episode. <laughs> all right. Hello, hello and welcome, everybody. Um, I believe this is episode 29, powered by our amazing Torch Pro. Um, my name is Tyler Smith, and this is my co-host, Riley Shan. Today, we had just a great human being. Um, I think we have both followed the same here, global mental health movement, for quite some time. And um, Riley, more or less, has gotten you know, gotten in touch with Eric Cusin and who runs the same here uh, movement. And I think just, I mean, we could have chatted for four and a half hours. I think it was just the, the, the insight, the, the way that he, you know, just looks at the world and the, the perspective that he has. I mean, don't get me wrong. His, his story is incredible. It's powerful. It's unbelievable. But I mean, I think what he's done now um, with his platform and the way that he can, you know, really make people think, and make people think, and especially in, in situations that are uncomfortable, like the suicide space, like the college athlete suicide space. Um, I just had a lot of fun. I, I learned a lot. And I think uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Riles, um, yeah, your take. Yeah, no, you summed it up well. I mean, he's he's great. I love what, what he's doing. Uh, just really like light bulbs go off when I read his posts and I see his perspective and it kind of allows me to alter my perspective based off kind of the way he comes at things um, regarding mental health. Um, so I, I think that's one one thing just to pay attention to is just when you read these stories about people struggling, actors, athletes, people who, with platforms and I mean, news stories that come out about people struggling, like just have us have some thoughts in the back of your mind that um, we're all kind of struggling and and the more we can do this together and I think Eric talks about the more we can hold each other's hands and, and get through this together, um, the better off we'll be. So uh, we enjoyed talking to Eric and he's a great guy, like you said, and uh, we hope you enjoy the episode. And if you aren't following the Speak Your Mind Instagram, as the kids say nowadays, W-Y-D, because we don't have enough things that we can just shrink into small little, you know, W-Y-D, all you listeners. Um, please head on over. We do some fun th- fun things weekly. Um, I look forward to crushing my boy Riles every week in New Tune Tuesday. Um, but yeah, we got an Instagram. And uh, also, before we jump into today's interview, uh, we wanted to highlight that Premier Blue Cross is a proud sponsor of Speak Your Mind. One in five people deal with mental health conditions every year. And as we have this conversation today with Eric, I mean, we definitely learned that five in five. Um, So no matter who you are, it's okay to ask for help. Premier Blue Cross, 
always in your corner. Now let's jump into the conversation. Eric, welcome to the show. Um, I know Tyler and I are super excited to have you on. Um, just so much of your stuff through your Instagram account, through same here, all, all of the movement stuff is so relatable and so powerful to us. So um, I know we've been counting down the days of this show. So welcome. Thank you. And you know, I'll say on my end, obviously, Riley watching you play and then Tyler, you know, knowing the story from a distance and Humboldt, it's it's amazing to see different people doing different things out in the space, but then being able to come together and collaborate around it makes it pretty special. So appreciate you guys having me. Yeah. I mean, I know your personal your journey has been kind of crazy. Um, when we spoke, I think we spoke in the summer before I even came to to Buffalo. Um we had the phone call and I mean, you're, you told me your story and, and it was crazy. It, it, unbelievable. So I want to start there. Um, I know it can be long winded, so maybe we'll have to interrupt you here and there and um, ask you some more specific questions and things like that. But I think Ty too, Ty didn't get that opportunity to listen in and it'd be important for him and, and our listeners to hear where this all started hear how you kind of came about with the same here movement. Um, and then we can go from there. So, I mean, maybe bring it back to sort of your college experience, your experience with sports and um, and kind of go from there. Yeah, absolutely. And feel free to interrupt me at any point along the way because I can't get long with it. I, I've gotten better at condensing it. So hopefully folks will will follow along and, and appreciate the, the linearity of it. But, you know, you mentioned going back to college. You know, I, I think like many people who probably listen to your podcast, big athlete growing up, played every sport that I could, loved watching every sport that I could. Uh, go to Cornell University, walk onto the basketball team there. So I still have my foot in sports. And then I graduate and I get a job at the NBA league office where uh, my boss was a guy named Mark Tatum, who's now the deputy commissioner of the NBA. Um, unbelievable guy, uh, super, super just uh, down to earth and really showed me the ropes in the industry. And David Stern was a commissioner of the NBA at the time. And so I got asked to start presenting on what was called the business of basketball to players like you, Riley, but on the basketball side of things. And it was at a time when the majority of the the big names in the NBA were guys like Kobe Bryant and Amari Stoudemire and Kevin Garnett, all guys who had come directly out of high school into playing in the NBA. And so their understanding of where the money came from not surprisingly, was was not very strong, right? They thought that they were these billionaire owners who said, this guy's worth this many millions, I'm going to pay him this, and that guy's worth that many millions, I'm going to pay him that. So this concept of the business of basketball presentation was to go in market and work with the teams. I wasn't working with individual players. So you'd have the everyone from the equipment manager to the video coordinator to the GM to the team, the actual players themselves. It's about 30 in a room at a time and present on the way in which revenues are created. And why is that important? Because it's called hockey-related income in hockey, and basketball It's called basketball-related income. You have to show them that it's ticket sales and sponsorship sales and arena revenues to show that the fans and the people who put money into the sport create the revenue streams, and then you get a percentage of that revenue stream that comes in the form of what your base salaries are through, you know, collective bargaining, right? And so if the pie grows, obviously your piece of the pie grows, right? That's why there's a salary cap 
you you remember this well, Riley. I'm going to more detail in the story now than I usually do. Is there was a time when it was 57% for the players and 43% for the owners, and we had a pretty long lockout where it went down to 50-50. And that mm-hmm. was because for everyone who thinks the NHL teams make so much money, well, the way that it was happening, you still had about 20 teams that were losing between a million and $10 million a year based on the way the revenues were split up. So they needed to even that out. They took the player percentage down a little bit, the owner percentage up a little bit. Probably not the most favorable thing for the players, but hopefully that example gives what I was doing at the time was I was helping the players to understand how the revenues are generated and where their salaries come. Get told that if I want to do anything in this industry, I have to learn how to sell. And I'm not a sales guy. I don't consider myself a sales guy. I'm a marketing guy. I'm a relationship guy, right? Sales is a dirty term. But I go out to Chicago when Tyler, when I was saying, you know, maybe we've crossed paths in, in other cities. Um, so I was in Chicago. The, the Chicago Sky started up a WNBA team that was the first independently owned franchise outside of NBA ownership. And so at 25, 26 years old, I get this opportunity to be their director of sales and service, a position I wasn't going to get in the NBA side of things at, at that young of an age. So I do that for two years. That leads, ironically, given that I had presented to Amari back in the day, to a director of sales and service job with the Phoenix Suns, Phoenix Mercury, right? And and actually bringing hockey into it, the Phoenix Roadrunners at the time, right? An ECHL team. Claude Lemieux was our coach. Really, really interesting <laughs> backstory there, right? We you know, you, just to break up the mental health conversation. I know. So so the types of promotional nights we had for the Phoenix. Uh, for the the Roadrunners was um, hairy back night, right? Like whose back was the hairiest? Like bad breath night. They had they had a game used ice night where they just filled up test tubes with water and they handed it out at the end, saying this is game. It's used a little ice. different now. Yep, a little different. So so I did that for three years. Then I came back east to New Jersey, became vice president of sales and service with the Devils. We go on this awesome run in 2012 to Stanley Cup final. Sucks going that far and losing, but we lost to the LA Kings in six games. Then I find myself, after four years with the Devils, I get this opportunity to become a chief revenue officer with the Florida Panthers. New ownership group came in. Um, uh, Vinny Viola, who's still the owner now, uh, military background, West Point grad, bringing in you know ton of military brats to run the team. I don't know where the hell I fit into that because I wasn't in the military. But um, I guess some type of confidence that he has in me that I've been able to run revenues for these other teams. And so I go down there and guys, like this is where now the, the mental health thing comes in and, and we can have some back and forth, certainly ask questions. But for everyone out there who's thinking like, oh, mental health, like you always know that it's coming around the corner. You know, it's going to take you down at some point. I was 34 years old, single, living in South Beach, making more money I'd ever made in my life with no state income tax, okay? Living on Las Olas Boulevard, huge apartment overlooking down the bars. Like life could not have been better situationally. I'm one step away from my dream job, which is becoming a team president. And what could be bad, right? So that is my life for the first six months of working at the team. And all of a sudden, I start to notice that I'm losing interest in things outside of the office. And I didn't know why that was happening, right? Okay, my friends are going out to eat after work. Uh, You guys go do your thing. I'll I'll meet you another day. 
I didn't want to go to the gym. I would come home and feel heavy. Like I was, you know, I throw myself on the couch and literally pass out on the couch. Like we see in the, in the movies, you just fall over on the couch and you lay there, um, you know, not wanting to play in my own leagues. Right. And so these things are like evaporating from interest in my life. But, and, and here's a key learning for people is when you've got that one thing, you guys are hockey players, right? When you've got that one thing that you love doing and that's clicking, that's fool's gold for you because you've got something that gets you up and going every single day. You're getting the dopamine hit from that. And it's like, awesome. Even though those other things are gone away, nothing's bad because that's still good. Right. And that was my take with working for the Panthers. Like we're starting to fill more seats. We're starting to sell more sponsorships. We're actually seeing this team start to get out of some of the conundrums that it's been in, in the past where we're not comping people the way that we used to and just filling a building with fake fans. Like, this is that things are going in the right direction. But the the coming in at seven in the morning and the leaving at 12 at night, you know, toward 12 in the morning, really, and rinse, wash, repeat, keep doing that. Eventually, okay, well, that catch up, catches up to you somewhere. And I remember waking up one day and it was like pushing myself out of quicksand to get out of bed. And I walked over to the closet. And it was like I had cinder blocks on my feet. And I look in the closet and it feels like a bomb has gone off in the closet even though everything's organized, I can't make out, do I wear a button down or a polo or slacks or jeans? And I did what I think a lot of people do. You know, you guys can tell me if you can relate to this, but like I tested my brain because my brain didn't feel like it was working. So I did the worst thing possible, which has made my sympathetic response go even higher by being like, well, things aren't working. I got to figure out to make sure that my brain is working. So I took a picture of my nieces and I was like, okay, these are my two most important little people in the world to me, Rebecca and Kaylee. What are their middle names? And I couldn't remember their middle names. So I'm like, when I say that's the worst place to be, my brain is is now spiraling because it's like, how could I go from being this functional human being to not remembering the middle names of people who are this important to me? Back to sports analogy. What do we do when we don't feel right? We, we clench our fists. We grit our jaw and we go white knuckle it. I'm going to make it happen. So what do I do? I get in my car. I definitely didn't shower that day. I didn't brush my teeth. Like it was awful. And I get in the car and I get into the office and I'm sitting behind my desk and I remember looking out at the staff and it's usually like, okay, season ticket sales are there. Individual game sales are there. Group sales are there. I can't make out where anyone is. It feels like it's Grand Central Station. You guys might be a little young to remember this reference, but instead of my emails looking like nice, clean lines one after the other, it looks like uh, uh, light brights, right? Like the, yeah. the, the, the game where the lights flash at you. That's oh, yeah, I remember that. So that night, and I, I know, Riley, you've been a part of these presentations, whether there's been a scratch or you've been injured or something like that. I have to give a presentation to um, the, 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 the fans that we had come out as prospects when you're chief revenue officer, your job is to be rah-rah and get people excited about buying the team and being being a season ticket holder or a corporate partner. So we get 50 prospects that are coming in the suite between the first and the second period. My brain is just not working that day. And I remember writing down on a piece of paper, hi, my name is Eric Houston. I'm the chief revenue officer with the Florida Panthers. It's nice to meet you. These 50 come in the suite and I look at them. I've never quit anything in my life because I'm a stubborn SOB. And I just, I read off of that index card, that line that I just shared with you. And my brain just goes blank, like, like not blank, but dark blank. And I go, this is Matt, our team president. He's going to take it from here. And I walked out. 
And again, still to this day, I don't think I quit. I think my brain literally shut down on me in that moment. Okay, we'll talk about what that shutdown is. But I go back to my desk and Vinny comes to me after the game, the, the owner, and couldn't have been more supportive. This was 2015. So it was a time when people were not talking about this stuff. And he's like, Eric, is everything okay? And, I, and, and, and when I say about this stuff, I didn't know what this stuff was. Do I have a traumatic brain injury from playing sports? Is it a brain tumor? As weird as this sounds, did I have an aneurysm and it's like infiltrating my brain right now? Or is it this mental health thing? And so he's like, Eric, we love what you're building here. We never leave a soldier out in the battlefield. Take as much time as you need. One month, two months, three months, come back, hit the ground running. And when I heard three months trying to continue to tie it back to like what people think about this space, I did. And, and you know, Tyler, you're up in Canada, right? So like in the U.S., they promote directly to consumer with pharmaceuticals. So when I heard three months from my owner, I was like, Oh, I've seen those commercials where a sad face and a gray cloud becomes a happy face and the sky is blue and the birds are chirping and the sun is shining 15 seconds into a 30-second commercial. I don't think it's going to be that easy. But when we grow up taking you know, amoxicillin, penicillin, and Leviquin because we had strep throat, bronchitis, or pneumonia, your thought process is when you don't feel well, you take that medication and that medication eventually makes you feel better. So hearing three months, I was like, it's not going to be as simple as that commercial, but eventually I'll find the right combination of drugs that pop me out of whatever I have and I'll feel better. That was my plan. And I go back to New York. I leave all my shit down in Florida and I go to the first doctor. I'm given five prescriptions, right? So an SSRI, a benzodiazepine, a booster to the SSRI, an off-label drug called Namenda, just one thing after another. And the doctor goes, you have a shit ton of depression on top of a shit ton of anxiety. You need heavy artillery for this to be knocked out of you. So, you know, you do what's, what's told of you, you know, when, when, when that's the case, like these are the experts, I got to do what they say. That led to two and a half years of absolute dysfunction. I did not leave my bed other than going to the doctor's office. I woke up every morning staring at the ceiling with what I call no original thoughts. So we take for granted as human beings that we wake up every day and we go, my mouth tastes like shit, like I need to brush my teeth, or I sweat the night before because it's too hot. I gotta take a shower. I've got this, you know, responsibility, or I got Riley, I got practice today. I gotta when you wake up and there's nothing, your brain isn't telling you anything, it's scary as could be. Like like the world just seems flat and dull and nothing. So two and a half years, 52 different psychotropic drug combinations. So if anyone ever wants to drop a DM and ask about a certain drug, I'm, I'm happy to. But why 52? And this is an important thing for people who are trying to get better. When you're a stubborn SOB that says, put me in coach, I'm ready to play, shoot me up with whatever you need to get me out on that ice or on that field or on that court, I was willing to take whatever they gave me. So I was literally the perfect patient and the perfect, I'm going to say it, customer because they knew that they could keep throwing more shit at me and I was going to keep taking it. Finally, I got a doctor who says, you got to try something different. Let's try TMS therapy. So they put a helmet on my head and they shoot electromagnetic waves into my brain trying to wake up the synapses. I'm not trying to talk down meds, not trying to talk down TMS, but they didn't work for me. I did 23 sessions, 23 days in a row of the TMS therapy. I've got some weird pictures of me in helmets I could share. And I wake up the morning of the 24th at four in the morning of 24 days in a row doing this. I'm using my hands to show you. And I'm sitting on my hands 
because this thought is running through my mind over and over again. It wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, uh, I was hearing voices. It was just a thought in my brain, a compulsion, a magnetic pull that said, swallow that bottle of pills, swallow that bottle of pills, swallow that bottle of pills. I never looked at a bottle of pills as something dangerous before in my life. Where the hell does this thought come from, right? We'll get back to where the thought comes from. But so I'm sitting, the reason I'm sitting on my hand is because I can't stop myself. So for everyone who thinks suicide is a choice and that why did that person make that decision? What could have been so bad in their life? Let that be case in point. And then the hundreds of people and maybe thousands of people I've spoke to one-on-one who've had suicidal thoughts, these things come over us. They become compulsive error messages. Yeah, right. Yeah. So through your whole, through the whole process, like even when you started feeling like shit and it started to go downhill, downhill, downhill fast, you didn't have any suicidal, anything like going on in your Dude, brain where- that, That's the thing that freaked me out so much, right? Like I thought I was doing everything I needed to to get better when I'm laying in that bed, even though I feel like shit. It's like I'm doing this because I need to be on this merry-go-round to find the right chemicals that balance out the imbalance. But I never had an ideation like that. And for everyone who's trying to figure out because they've never had an ideation or for the people who've had them and want to be able to relate, I'll, I'll use these scenarios. And I'm sorry for the tr- trigger warning for anyone out there. Why do we look at a knife sometimes? And for some of us, oh, that's what cuts up meat. That's how I make my steak edible. And some of us look at a knife and go, what happens if I took that knife and dragged it across me? How does our brain see the exact same object two ways? How do we drive over a bridge and we go, oh, that's a big structure that connects two landmasses over water. It gets me from one landmass to the next. And then other people look at a bridge and their mind's going, Go over it, go over it, go over it, right? It happened with me with trains. A train would come by on the platform and my brain would be like, hurl yourself into it, hurl yourself into it. And I, they was, these were not things I chose. By the way, to your question directly, Riley, that, that thought with the train didn't happen until later after. So right. the first example of feeling it, and where does that come from? I think I've got a theory. We'll get to it. But like, how does the brain develop that thought? Because the, the common misconception is, we're losing people to suicide because they're going through difficult events and they're making the choice that things are harder than being here. And I think that's a bunch of bullshit and it's not fair to all the people that we're losing by suicide and it's keeping the narrative backwards, right? So, and and please, again, keep. I love the, the back and forth to so interrupt me at any point. So I go inpatient to a psych ward, right? I, I, I love using the terms because they don't make me feel shameful at all. And it's ridiculous that these are still the terms. So it's kind of like humor. Well, at, well, at the same time, ridiculousness, it's called the psych ward. It's called the mental hospital. It's called all these things on podcasts. I usually don't say the name of the hospital, so they don't think that I'm trashing them, but it was a very reputable one with, you know, top ratings. Okay. And I go inpatient and I meet with the attending psychiatrist. I'll say this. She had Harvard degrees all over her wall, top doctor plaques everywhere. And she just looks at my chart and she goes, Eric, you've tried everything there is. Your last resort is to do ECT, electroconvulsive therapy or shock therapy for those of us who've seen it in the movies. And I was less scared about getting shock therapy than I was hearing the term last resort. Because no one on this planet, or am I allowed to curse on this podcast? Oh, no? by all means, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So no one on this fucking planet should ever be told, no matter what they're fucking going through, that this is a last resort. I don't care if you have a hangnail and they're telling you that you're going to be gangrenous because you didn't get it taken out or you've got this thing called mental health. 
there are zillions of things that you can try. And here, because I tried the meds and the talk therapy with the TMS therapy, my last resort is to get my brain shocked and there's nothing else that can help me. So when you're told that, you do what they say. I did 12 sessions inpatient of getting my brain shocked into seizure, skipping the details of the misery of waking up, not knowing where you are, what your name is, what, 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 uh, what country you were born in. And I leave the hospital after five weeks feeling no better than I had the two and a half years prior, thinking logically, unless Merck or Pfizer invents some miracle pill that pops me out of this and makes me feel better, I'm treatment resistant and I'm never getting better. So where the story turns for the better, and then this is where then the movement and the idea behind the organization came about. So I meet this woman who practices integrative psychology. My parents went to like a course she was teaching. And my parents come back from course. They're like, Eric, we met this woman. She treats differently than all these other doctors you've been to. Please go see her. Please go see her. So I'm sitting on her couch. And again, you guys will relate to this because you've been to your own professionals. I'm expecting, even though they're saying she treats differently, the cadence and the chronology of every doctor appointment I've been to, three segments, always the same. Tyler, it's very nice to meet you. What are your symptoms? And you list your symptoms. That's segment one. Tyler, based on your symptoms, here's your diagnosis. That's segment two. And I was diagnosed with everything from melancholic depression, anhedonic depression, PTSD, OCD, ADD, ADHD, like you name it, every single you know group of alphabet soup letters in the DSM-5. And then the third segment was always, based on your diagnosis, here's how we're going to treat you. And that's where the 52 different meds came in, right? So this doctor is very different. She goes, Eric, um, okay, you know, I, I have one question for you. Who is Eric? Tell me the story of your life, right? And so for people who are hearing that, like, think of Tyler and his story of what happened with the bus accident. Is that Tyler's whole life? No, but it's a big piece of his life. And it's part of what he would tell in this story. And the bus accident is not this thing called PTSD. The bus accident is this thing called the bus accident. That's an important distinction. Something happened to him, right? So I don't know what I'm revealing as I'm sharing my story. All I know is this doctor wants to get to know me. So I feel very disarmed right now. So I just thought oh, I'm in the middle of three boys. We're a sports crazed family, uh, my older brother. And then this is what starts coming out of me. From the time I'm eight years old, my older brother breaks his femur bone and is put into a body cast for a year and homeschooled. Heals from that and gets diagnosed with ALL, children's form of leukemia. So late 80s, early 90s, not the best prognosis when you have childhood leukemia, but miracle, he goes into remission. Month later, here's hockey comes into play. He's in a Jeep Wrangler with his friends on the way to an Islander game. Car loses control. He's in the back, no seatbelt in the back. Lot flies out, lands on the Meadowbrook Parkway. You've, you've been on it many times, Riley, if you paid play the Islanders. Cracks his head open, loses partial vision in his eyes in ICU for a month. Heals from that, goes to college, gets a relapse of the same leukemia he had as a child. Now they have to give him a stronger dose of the chemo, which is doing a great job of knocking out the cancerous cells. But unfortunately, it's also breaking down a lot of the healthy cells in his body. So you see his hair falling out, but you also see his joints breaking down, hunched over more. I get a call. I'm up at college at this point to come meet them back down in Long Island where he's at the hospital. 105 fever he's developed. Body goes into septic shock from the chemo treatments, just making his body acidic, septic shock into a coma. Now imagine having a family member who's in a coma for three months and the doctor's telling us, we don't know if he's ever going to wake and if he does wake, if he's ever going to have any brain activity. So those three months, 
like we're throwing, you know, let, let's hope that a miracle happens. Miracle does happen. He wakes full cognitive faculties about him, having conversations with us, but his kidneys fail from the rigor of the septic shock. So he needs to go on dialysis. We all get tested to see who's the closest match. My father is donates a kidney to him. That all ends. I get that job at the league office that I was telling you about. And um, unfortunately, three of my close friends, 22 and 23 years old, pass away back to back to back of either misdiagnosed or undiagnosed heart conditions, like freak things. One guy collapsing on a treadmill, one guy walking on boxes up a flight of stairs. So it was just one thing after another. And so why am I sharing that full detail of the story in a conversation we're going to have back and forth? Because the doctor stopped me at that point and she goes, Eric, what else happened to you as a child and a young adult that impacted your mental health that I need to know about? And I go, I'm 35 years old and I've been sitting in my bed, laying in my bed for two and a half years, being told I have a chemical imbalance with all these different names and trying to find the, the chemicals that balance out my imbalance. What the hell does that have to do with the story I just told you of my life where you just asked me to tell you who I was and you ended me, you stopped me short at 22, 23 years old. And she gave a great analogy that I think athletes, especially the folks who listen to your podcast, will appreciate. She goes, Eric, if you had a front row seat for an NBA basketball game, you'd be running up and you, these basketball players are running up and down the court. You're entertaining your clients in a nice suit and the, 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 the sweat is hitting off them and splashing and hitting your suit or they're diving for a loose ball and they land in your lap. The sweat get, gets all over your suit. You go home that night, you take a shower, you put your suit away for the dry cleaner and you come in nice and clean the next day. This, what happened was you had a front row seat, but it was for the game of life, right? Now, Tyler, every time I'm saying this stuff, I'm thinking of you and your lived experience. So you had a front row seat for the game of life, but the game of life wasn't represented by a basketball game. It was represented by your brother in a muddy wrestling ring and your friends in a muddy wrestling ring. And every move they made to stay alive against the game of life, the mud was splattering from them trying to pin that game of life and hitting you. And you did everything but focus on the mud. You were looking at the Jumbotron and how nice the HD board was and the LED and how nice the colors were and the music and how good the music was and the fans dancing. So you didn't realize that that mud was caking up on you. Back to the example of being in Florida, a oh, single guy, South Beach, this is awesome. Well, the mud's getting heavy and eventually that mud gets so heavy, your brain can't deny it anymore and it literally took you down off the seat. Now, think about your story, Tyler, right? Like you watched the Bucks accident happen in front of you. So you were in it. I I wasn't in the bed with my brother when he was in the coma. I wasn't in the car when that accident happened. So I get a little pissed off when she's telling me that this is what mental health is because I go, all we need to do is watch shit happen to other people in our lives and that impacts our mental health. Take me out of the equation. Take the average 15-year-old watching their parents get into fights and get a divorce watching their parents lose their job and potentially lose the house, watching their two best friends' friendships dissolve and them never talking again, or their friend being broken up with the, by the first time and being crushed by that relationship, or their friend being bullied in the schoolyard or verbally abused, or their friend coming up to them and telling them they were sexually abused, or dealing with the sickness of a loved one or loss of a loved one. There's not a person on this planet who hasn't been through one summer, many of those things by 15 years old. If that's what mental health is, Everyone on this planet's mental health has been impacted, and that's not the narrative that's out there. I was like, so so explain to me, because if I had known that shit that you just told me, instead of doing stadium stairs and doing you know bench press, I'd have been working on this because I'd been knowing this was have been impacted, and then I wouldn't be in this place that I'm at. Why is that not the narrative? And so she you could tell I get heated about it. So she tells me to calm down, and I'll, <laughs> I'll land the plane in a second. Like, 
It's like, Eric, she's like, yes, everyone's mental health is impacted. Yes, you're on point. Let's help you get healthy first. Then we'll talk about like how we address this whole rest of society thing. So she gives me the book, The Body Keeps the Score. So I start to learn about brain-body connection. And she sends me to this weekend course called The Art of Living. I'm the only male, only one under 40. Riley was laughing this when I told him it the first time. <laughs> and all, so only male, only one under 40, only one born in this country. So it's me and eight Indian women and nine yoga mats. Okay, like, like a movie script could be written on it. And I'm, I'm a fish out of water. But now I start learning from the practitioner why is doing rhythmic breathing patterns – going to start to normalize my central nervous system. We think of mental health as this chemical imbalance that lives up in a cloud above us. It's not what it is. It's changes to the vagus nerve and the tone of the vagus nerve. It's the way the cells become inflamed. It's the way the amygdala becomes overfunction. It's the way that our gut and our brain don't talk to one another. It's the way that it changes our sleep-wake cycles and our circadian rhythm. Like This is what messes us up. It's biology. And no one's teaching us this. And we think we just either have the chemical imbalance or we don't. And so mentioned landing the plane. I think a good way to do it will be kind of explaining how Theo Fleury got involved with what we did is I went to the largest nonprofit websites in our country as I started to heal from these breathing practices. And I go and I look and I see consistency in all the messaging. And you think consistency is a good thing. We want to change messages like let's get people talking this way. The consistency, and that was in 2017, is the same consistency now in 2022, five years later, and it's consistency that moves us backwards. And I think that there's nefarious reasons why, but we could we could argue that if we want. The three things that I see, first is they all start with the statistic one in five people are mentally ill. The second you start with that statistic, you've made the topic binary. Tyler's mentally ill. And then everyone else that are his four friends that he hangs out with, they're fine, healthy, normal, and okay. So now you're in a different category than them. So that's number one. Number two, what do they do to normalize the, camp, the, the, the conversation? Here's our campaign. Stop the stigma. Break the stigma. Okay. Hockey now, amazingly, because I just got it yesterday, has stick it to stigma. Okay. When you put an action word in front of stigma, you're basically giving people a command because the term stigma means human beings are forming unfair opinions and judgments about other human beings. When you say stop, stomp, break, erase, stick it to, you're saying you motherfuckers over there who are being mean to us poor people over here who are sick, you need to stop doing what you're doing. So we're taking this binary topic of have it and don't have it and we're saying, fuck you, you're being wrong, you got to stop doing what you're doing. That moves us further apart. Then the third piece, which is where uh, Riley's role comes in and being a public figure is the way they were sharing that it's normal to go through this. Britney Spears has depression. She's part of the one in five. Lindsay Lohan has anxiety. She's part of the one in five. You're not alone. Well, Britney Spears has depression and shaves her head. Lindsay Lohan has anxiety, dresses like a hot mess. Kanye West has bipolar, says crazy things about his family and thinks he could run for president, right? Add those three things up. It's for one in five people. Let's stop stigmatizing that poor group. And if you want to know if you're in that poor group, do you run off the basketball courts and panic attacks like Kevin Love and try to kill yourself like uh, Michael Phelps? How many people are raising their hand when you come to an event, Tyler, that you speak that's voluntary and going, that's a group I'm a part of. I don't need to be mandated to come to this. I want to self uh, 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 you know, identify in this group. It doesn't happen. And, and that's why we're here to talk about this, where, where I m- ended up getting, a, I mentioned I'd say Theo Fleury involved is he, much like what Riley does, much like what you're doing now, Tyler, Theo was the earliest one that I saw in 2017 
who was not out there going, I'm Theo Fleury with PTSD, hear my PTSD journey. Theo Fleury was out there going, I was raped by my male coach 150 times. And my dad was an addicted gambler and my mother tortured me with religion and telling me that I wasn't going to salvation. You know, uh, there was no path towards heaven for me. And that destroyed me. And I turned to drinking and drugging and sexing and gambling my $50 million that I made away. I was like, that's the story people need to hear. Not Theo's in particular, but that thread of what did you live through? What were the events? How did it impact the way that you feel and emotionally what you go through? What do you turn to to deal with that emotional pain that was maladaptive? Where did it lead you to? And now what have you learned from it now that you realize that those were all the wrong coping mechanisms? That means five and five. Everyone is a part of it. But that's not the narrative that's out there. So – Wow. <laughs> I, uh, I wanted to interject so many times, Eric, but like not in a bad way, but then I'm just like, I can't stop listening. Like this is so profound and something that unfortunately just not a lot of people think about in that way. And I think that's the one thing I want to touch on initially is that foundational impact of your childhood, of your, your, your parental upbringing, the, you know, just your upbringing in general. Um, how was that even for you to have those conversations as you're going through this, as you're starting to understand that it's not just a chemical imbalance? You know, this is my trauma. This is my events. This is my life. This is what I've been through. How did how did you find those initial conversations, you know, with the people around you, with your parents, with your loved ones? Like, because I can imagine that's a hard kind of thing to balance, you know, because it's not a case of you're coming at them. It's just a case of this has affected me. And now, unfortunately, it's just bottled up into this, you know. So back to my original question, how did how were those initial conversations? (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm smiling only because you're asking a great question, which often is not the follow up that most people think of. And I think it's because you've been so open about your own path. So your mind goes there and you're like, these things are difficult to bring up. So I'll bring up a couple things because obviously you have different family members and impacts your relationship with them differently. My parents are the most loving people in the world. They care a lot about everyone. Like they were there for me and my little brother, but the way that they were there, the way that they showed affection and emotion and, and, and coddling and support, maybe not coddling is the wrong term, right? Cause that sounds soft, but like uh, uh, support and comfort was by doing, taking me to every single event, taking me to every practice, being there at practice for me, um, I got an award. They were the first one in a row, you know, and I'm like, how are my parents doing this while they're having to take my brother back and forth to chemo treatments like that? That's amazing. So I never felt at the time like they weren't doing something and that this stuff was piling up on me. Now, looking back on it, going through therapy, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way to my parents, it's just we were given different tools and we all emote and, 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 and um, you know, share differently is my dad was the consummate optimist because that was his protection mechanism. Todd's going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. Nothing. He's going to get through this. Well, as a kid, you're not given the green light to talk about what you're scared about when your dad's saying everything's going to be okay. It, it helps you in a way because you're like, oh, that, that, that's a good sign that my dad's saying that. But you're not sharing what you're fearful of. What happens if he dies? Where does he go if he dies? I'm afraid of... That scenario, if he dies, the other people in my family die, right? So, and my mom's very much a you know introvert and 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 
gives silent treatment a lot when when things aren't going well. Not because that's just the coping mechanism she developed. So I never at a young age in my house had the ability to talk about the stuff that was bothering me, but it wasn't for lack of support. It was just lack of this was how we handle things, right? So that's number one. Number two, I had to be very concerned with my older brother being upset that it looked like I was using his sickness as a scapegoat for how I felt. And so I had to be very direct and honest at the beginning and go, my brother didn't choose to get cancer. He didn't choose to be in these accidents. Life chose him in that way. And then I was a collateral damage from that. And that's not my brother's fault in any way. Now, there are family members, I won't say who, like connected family members, things like that, that don't love that I talk about this, right? Because in this, we have the perfect life now because we've got kids or we've got, you know, a family that's intact. Why does that stuff need to be discussed again? Well, you know what? I discuss it because I don't mind being raw and honest when it helps other people. That's why I discuss it. So I hope that helped answer your question is like, you know, I think we're put in situations at young ages where it's like, what? it's not even that someone's saying to you, don't speak about this. This is not stuff that we talk about. I hear that a lot in families. That wasn't it. It was like the coping mechanisms that we had, they, they, they weren't there for me. So I kept it internal. And I thought, Riley, you'll probably appreciate this, that that Players' Tribune article that um, Ben Gordon, the, the NBA player, had. He played for the Bulls. And if anyone wants to read one of the most revealing vulnerable stories ever read his players should be an article. I want to say it's from three years ago and he goes, I'm playing for the bulls and I went through all this shit as a kid. And all I'm thinking is what is some middle-aged white woman with white hair and glasses going to tell me about my life that I don't already know. Take the, the, what seems like derogatory comment about what the person looks like out of it. What, what Ben is sharing there is what is someone that I can open up to a psychologist going to tell me about my situation that I've been playing over and over in my head again so many times that I don't already know. That's the perception that a lot of people have of therapy because that's what they show in the images. That person takes my ball of yarn and they untangle it in my head. That's not what therapy is. Therapy is giving you an opportunity to unload the shit that you need to unload and then find skill sets to be able to get around the trauma and heal from it. It's not going to the well and that person solving your problems for you, right? So I hope that motivates people to want to open up and share because it's getting that air out of that balloon and and it not to pop. That's fun. Like it's it's funny. So you even said it about like the psych ward and mental hospital and stuff too. And it's kind of similar to like the the Ben Gordon thing. Like it's like it still is. I mean, maybe it's a little less than before, but it's so intimidating those words like – therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist, mental institute, psych war, like all those things are such like aggressive words that we've obviously built up over time compared to like whatever, like go to like the ear, nose, throat doctor, you go to like the dentist or whatever, you know, like it's, it's just crazy how like that's where our brains have taken us. Right. Dive deeper into that topic because it's an important topic to discuss, right? And it doesn't get enough, doesn't get enough play. So let's compare, right? You see hospital after hospital for physical health. They're like, we need to make this hospital more like a hotel. We need to make it inviting. Guess who needs a fucking hotel? A person who's going through a major mental health crash does not need to lay on a fucking metal bed cot. 
that's got a tiny little mattress with wooden furniture that like was 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 in a college dormitory because they're afraid of you hurting yourself. Like this is what is needed and that's not given, right? And then, you know, I, I was in the hospital and like the people that they are, are in there, it's like there's no separation of who's dealing with what, right? So it's like in, 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 a, in, a, in a physical health hospital, the oncology ward, okay, it's all the people who are dealing with, you know, uh, dealing with cancer. Well, when you're in the psych ward, it's all these different people with different symptoms and you're like, immediately your mind goes to, I'm not hearing voices, but that guy or that gal is, does that mean I'm going to start hearing voices because I'm here? And then you start comparing yourself and you go, I'm getting shock therapy, but they're not getting shock therapy. So does that mean I'm the most fucked up of the fucked up people in this room right now? Like we're, we're treating this so badly. It's incredible. And then the, the most important point probably that I'll probably get to is take the average kid who's dealing with just shit and their parents want to get them help, whatever help is. The terms that you just threw out there, where the fuck does anyone know where to begin? Where is the roadmap, right? Like some people go to the general practitioner. Well, guess what? Here in the US, going to the general practitioner means you're getting a pill thrown at you to solve this thing because the majority of psychotropics that are prescribed are prescribed by your primary care physician, okay? So start with that. But from there, do you go to the psychologist? Do you go to the psychiatrist? Does the psychologist talk to the psychiatrist? Do you go to the residential treatment facility center? Do you, can you afford to go to the residential treatment center? Do, should you go to the residential treatment before you go to the psychologist or before you go to the psychiatrist because you should try meds before you go somewhere where you're taking time off of work or, or off of school? Okay, do you go to PHP, partial hospitalization program? Do you go to an inpatient hospitalization program? It, what is the difference between an IOP and just a general hospital or a mental hospital? There is no linearity to any of this shit. And they want you at your worst to be able to navigate that system. How the fuck are we supposed to do that? Yeah. yeah so sorry to get no, no, it's no, no. ridiculous. I, I know. I, I mean, I appreciate the, just the, the passion of just, it's, it's just sad to see, honestly, like it's just from the outside, like this could be very preventable about, you know, we're already going in, in, into an uncomfortable space and now we're uncomfortable about going into this space even more because of the terms that are attached because we just don't know, you know, especially parents and stuff like that. So, but I want to kind of rewind a little bit. Um, we glanced over yeah. that support, that initial support from your Florida Panthers owner. Um, I think we're seeing it now, you know, we're seeing that small shift that's happening. We're seeing change, which is important. I mean, it's still, we got a long ways to go in all leagues across the board. We're seeing it in the NBA. We got figures like Kevin Love. We got figures like DeMar DeRozan. We got figures like Uninterrupted with LeBron and what he's doing with the shop. Um, we're seeing it in the NHL. We got figures like Carey Price, Jonathan Drouin. How important was it for you to, you know, Obviously, being, I guess, a smaller fish in a big, big pond, like a, a major sports league, how important was it for you to have that initial support when realistically, like you said, nobody was talking about it at this time? Yeah. You know, so I think Vinny took a ton of the heat off me by by saying three months because, you know, you're not then at that point where you're like, I need to get back in a week or else I'm screwed. The flip side to that is once I got to the three month mark because things weren't getting better, I then started freaking out. Right. And I still like one of the guys is on our board is Vinny's best friend. Um, so through that relationship, still have a lot of um, good feelings towards the Panthers organization. And probably not surprisingly, um, you saw that the Panthers were the first team to announce, although it had to change over time, but 
we're going to try to hold on to our employees as long as we can during the pandemic and not let anyone go. That shows the fabric of the man, right? Now, when you're talking about support, Tyler, there's other things in there uh, and, and they're nuances. And, and you and Riley can certainly agree or disagree with me on these. I love that we're having more people talk. I don't know that we're talking the right way yet, right? Yeah. So I'll give you a very good example. So you brought up Kevin Love. You brought up DeMar DeRozan. When I go into a room of kindergartners up through CEOs and I put the pictures of these folks up on the wall, I say, these are the biggest celebrities in our world as it pertains to mental health. What do you know about their mental health? Kevin Love had anxiety and a panic attack. Kanye West has bipolar. Kate Spade died by suicide. DeMar DeRozan has depression. We know the tidbits of the name of the celebrity and the label. Off of the heels of what I shared with you of those three things I noticed on the websites are the biggest messages in mental health. If all we're hearing from each new celebrity is celebrity name and disorder, celebrity name and disorder, it's doubling down on the existing erroneous messages. It maybe is giving more permission to people to say, if you struggle with this thing called depression by having this list of five symptoms of this group of 20 or more for two weeks, then you fall into this category. Okay, they're giving some more permission. But for all the people whose minds we actually have to change, when we hear Dak Prescott depression, how many football fans are going, okay, that's Dak. He's in that one in five group, but that's not me. Let's let him talk during May's Mental Health Awareness Month, but that's not me. That's why the conversation has to change to I was in a major bus accident. I saw friends pass away. I saw friends get injured. That so you would you would like to hear more more bulk about what? Yeah, you have you have depression, you have anxiety, you have bipolar. But like, explain to me like why you think that, like why you think you you like the reason for for this illness or this whatever. Isn't, like, Riley, isn't that, isn't that what connects us? Like if 100%. you went into a room, if you went into a room and it, we'll, we'll use Tyler's example, because I keep going to the bus. If you go into a room and you go, I've got this thing called PTSD. What percentage of the people are relating to you versus I was in a major accident and I lost people in my life, right? Those are two commonalities. Who hasn't lost a person in their life at a young age? I don't know a person on this planet, sadly, right? Unless they have a very small family and not outside of that family. So who hasn't lost someone and who hasn't been in an accident? Maybe not to that level, but the connectivity and the the reason the name of the organization is same here is I'm not saying, Tyler, same here. You have PTSD and I have PTSD. Riley, you have depression. I have depression. I'm not saying that. I'm saying Tyler and Riley, you're a human being and I'm a human being. And as being a human being, we've been through challenging life events Let's talk about those challenging life events because the bullshit of the labels is what the pharmaceutical industries want out there because it separates us further. And I'm sorry if I'm being the bad guy or the bull in the china shop by saying that. I know it's got its place for insurance and we need it. I understand that we need to make organization out of chaos to try to help people understand what they're going through. But here's what the issue is that happens. I'm in the anxious group. You're in the depressed group. I'm in the OCD group. You don't understand what I'm going through. I don't understand what you're going through. If you could find me a person on this planet who has grade A depression without any of the symptoms of anything else, I'd love to fucking meet that person. It doesn't happen. Our brain goes through these challenging life events. Our nervous system shifts to a place of oversympathetic response, we become dysregulated and we have symptoms. And the symptoms are similar in some cases and they're different in some cases. But what we do is we bucket people into these different categories and it makes us separate. 
So it makes yeah. us separate into sick and healthy. And even within the sick, it makes us into all these different sick categories. So, so the mission is and why, you know, I love coming on and talking with guys like you and, and the work that you're doing is you're revealing people's stories. When you call it the bulk and the meat, Riley, I, the bulk and the meat needs to be what I would say is primary and only as a starting point. I'll give you one more analogy that I hope is helpful. We're all walking around in a school being told to go into classes, but no one knows they're in the fucking school. Think about that for a second. Go to math class, go to science class, go to English class. But wait a second. I don't realize I'm in a school right now. Why are some people going into math and English? It's because you're all in the fucking school and you all need to learn different courses. But we're not told we're all in the school because we're not told we're all victims, so to speak, or 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 victims may be the wrong term, that we're all affected by our mental health. So no one knows that they're all in the school looking at other people going in those classes going – I guess they're going to learn in there, but I'm just going to keep walking in whatever structure I'm in right now. Yeah. It's crazy. Wow. Yeah. And like, I, just, sorry, go, right, ahead, go ahead. No, no. I was just no, going to talk about like the choice words. I think that is like something I, once again, like every time we do this podcast, I look forward to, you know, learning something new and connecting with an individual that I never thought I'd connect with on a, in a space that I never thought I'd be connecting with that individual in. And I think the, the perfect, thing that you just outlined is the choice words and being able to not continually just label it as you know and have those strong strong labels that you know people can get scared of and and that's okay just because we're all still learning every day but i think even when i relate it to like my public speaking engagements i think the biggest things that people will relate to is when i i'm able to emphasize that I, unfortunately, we went through something that I hope never, ever happens to anybody again. But at the end of the day, I am able to resonate and com- and connect with people who haven't gone through something that traumatic or went through that much grief, but I'm still able to connect because their story has meaning, their story has depth, their story has layers, and I'm allowed to connect with whatever thing you know, just instantly comes to my mind. So I think, I mean, I just had a thought. I didn't have a question, but I think it's just like, I love that choice word. And I love that being able to. That's probably why you're having the success that you're having, Tyler, is because, you know, your story is such a big piece of who you are. It didn't default to let me start with when I'm doing my public speaking, what my label is, right? And I'm I'm not saying that your label is not, I don't know, right? Because I haven't seen, but Everyone knows the story of humble. When you, when I say everyone, if you're in the sports world, right, mm-hmm. or you follow TV, it's a it's a pretty under you know uh, well known story that happened. That disarms everyone else in that room. The second you open up and share that, people take a deep breath and go, "I can be me." Yeah, and that's freaking huge. Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, I grew up in an era where the veterans would be sitting at the tables at bagel stores eating by themselves, having the, 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 the hat on with the war that they fought in and go thinking to myself as a little kid, why is that guy sitting by himself? Why is no one sitting with him? And then you'd ask adults and they'd go, he went through a war that no one else can rec- understand. He, you know, he can only relate to the people who went through that war. Now what I know about mental health, I'm like, that's a bunch of bullshit. And that's not to downplay at all what military people go through. And it's instead to say, we should be able to relate to that person because we've all been through our own war. Your bus accident, which I'm sure is one of many things you've been through in your life, Tyler, that is your war, right? My my brother's sicknesses and the loss of my friends, that was my war. And when we connect based on, you know, 
it frustrates the hell out of me when I hear someone say, well, that that person, that mom lost her son to suicide. So she can only talk to other people who've lost their sons to suicide. Are we really going to be that narrow where we're not going to allow pain to support pain and commonality to support commonality? If that's the lanes that we're playing in, you're not going to meet many people in your lives who've been through exactly what you've been through. When, when yeah. pain is common, that's where we can support one another. I think that's a good segue to our next kind of topic too, is like, I know the suicide topic is hard to speak about. And I think it's probably one of the reasons why, uh, Ty, you had the date and the post. Actually, maybe you you take this question because you had it uh, formulated pretty good. Yeah, no. So um, Riley and I definitely wanted to cover this topic. Um on April 24th of last year, um, you shared an image of the bright students we have lost to suicide in those recent months, you know, the college athlete space. I think my initial thought is you kind of touched on in, in your caption a little bit, but what can we as a society and as individuals do to help prevent this horrible trend of deaths from happening, especially to, like you said, these bright minded individuals um, who are you know, playing a sport they love and, you know, having an education at the same time, you know, how do we, how do we stop this trend? And I, I think, I mean, it's a, it's a probably a tough question to just completely answer right off the uh, hop. But I think that's the, the biggest thing is because like you said, I mean, these are bright, bright people that we are losing far, far too soon. Um, and yeah. Well, listen, it, I love that you, you brought the question up because it, it allows me to go back to that feeling of the swallow bottle of pills, swallow the bottle of pills, and where did that come from, right? So my belief is with suicide, stress and trauma build in the nervous system. I'm holding hands like this for a reason, the way that plaque builds in our arteries. Plaque cumulatively builds, and if we don't do anything about it or enough about it, and we eat more you know, saturated fats, let's say, the, 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 the arteries get clogged more combined with our genetics, and then we have a heart attack, and we could die from that heart attack. I think what happens with stress and trauma is it builds and builds and builds and the bridge starts to bend. And eventually when the bends too much, the bridge breaks, right? So what does the bridge breaking mean? Well, if we're wired for survival, food, shelter, water, clothing, and we get the dopamine hit every day we wake up from the things that I said I wasn't getting when I woke up each morning, I need to go to work. I need to accomplish this. I need to make this amount of money. Riley has a young kid so that I can support my family, right? So I could, it's fun playing hockey. So I love doing that, but I also get to put the roof over my, my wife's house and my kid's house. No derogatory comment to women there. I'm sure wives contributing as well. I'm just trying to sit, use Riley as an example, right? Is so, so we get this dopamine hit of the survival mechanism. When the stress trauma build eventually makes that break, I think what happens we're in the what, what, what polyvagal theory calls dorsal vagal part of our nervous system, where shutdown happens, metabolic shutdown. And in metabolic shutdown, just like the computer goes, too many windows open, blue screen, blue screen, got to turn off, or the phone goes, you've been in the sun for too long, got to take it out of the sun, got to shut down, and got to stop working. I think the brain goes, it's time to shut down. And I think the thoughts that develop at that point become how do we get this system out of here instead of in here? So it's the opposite thought. Literally, instead of food, shelter, water, clothing, it starts seeing these objects as things we can hurt ourselves with, things that we can get out of that situation with. 
I'm, I'm saying that to everyone because I want everyone to know that's not a conscious thought. I can't, I can't deny that there are some suicides where we lose people to conscious thought. We're human beings. Of course that happens. But if the scenario that I just described is the majority is even 30% of the suicides that happen. And guess what? How many suicides happen where there's no note left, where the, the commentary always goes, you never would have thought, not them. I hope that's making people think about suicide in a different way. So if we can be forward in talking about suicide and saying, these are how the thoughts develop. Here's what to look out for, right? We have a tool that's called Lifesaver. L-I-F-E is four different uh, words, an acronym for look around for, right? Initiate dialogue, find a safe place and say there, explain what's going on. Why do we have that L-I-F-E? Because we want to be proactive in first person suicide prevention. Right now, we have all the tools in the world for what do I look? Oh, I should look out if Tyler's giving away possessions. That's a pretty obscure thing. I'm going to be very blunt about it. That doesn't really get Okay, that's a, if we see, does Tyler have a plan? Ask him if he has a plan. Okay, what are we telling Tyler that he needs to look out for in himself? We have stop, drop, and roll for suicide prevention, but we don't have first-person suicide, excuse me, for, uh, for fire safety, but we don't, we don't have a, a stop, drop, and roll for, for suicide prevention. And that's where the concept of Lifesaver comes in. And, and so hopefully in a roundabout way of explaining your answer and then explaining and answer your question, then bring it back to center is we have to educate on how suicide happens, that it happens to us, that it's a cumulative build over time, and that any of us are susceptible to that. Until that happens, shame doesn't go away. Until it happens, it's that guy or that gal died that way. Poor them that they felt so bad that they made that decision. Let's not talk about it, right? So educating on how it happens, that it impacts all of us. Then in that, giving first-person tools so you know what to look out for, you know who to call and how to reach out so you get the help that you need. I'll end my little soapbox thing on this. If, Riley, you were having a heart attack in the middle, God forbid, of New York City, you'd have no problem grabbing someone next to you going, I'm having that pain in the left side of my jaw. I'm having that pain down the left side of my arm. Can you get me to a hospital right now? You'd have no problem doing that. No one on the planet would have a problem doing that. But if you started having suicidal thoughts in the middle of Times Square, you wouldn't want to talk to anyone about it. You'd be yeah. afraid that the person who you're saying it to would be like, this fucking guy's weird. What's wrong with him? Why? They're both yeah. heart attacks of our system or attacks of our system. We have to get to a place where we're reaching out and holding on to that stranger and going, I'm having those thoughts of self-harm. Can you bring me to a safe place? is as common as I'm having the heart attack feelings. Can you bring me to a hospital? Yeah, I think it's so important to like, and you obviously are doing this. So you, you're cognizant of it as like you guys doing your scale work and then putting that into schools for young kids too, because like, I know for me, one of the hardest points of my life, I think it goes hand in hand with any sort of big transition. When I went away to school as the first time I went away from home, I was 17 years old. So I was pretty young and now I'm going to play on like Notre Dame, big like D1 scholarship, very high end uh, educationally. And I had no grasp of that because my first 16 years of my life were pretty easy. Hockey, half-assed school, parents were great, friends were great, everything was great. And then it changed. But like I, I didn't have, I just never thought of the, or I never was brought up even having to worry about the scale because I was always happy, you know? So then I think when I transitioned into the college, my college career, and then to the NHL, I had trouble 
dealing with those transitions. And then it came out maybe a little too much alcohol, got in trouble, pressure, all these things that led to kind of depressive thoughts, a lot of anxiety, not being able to perform the way I want to. So I think it's really cool what you guys, and, and both my parents are teachers too. I think yours, did you say yours were too? Or Yeah, my parents are both teachers. Dad was a principal, mother was a, was a language teacher, yeah. So just developing those those uh that ability to speak and that ability to communicate at a young age so you're com- you're comfortable doing it as you get older i think is really cool and i'm sure that's probably why why you guys are doing it if you can speak on that a bit yeah so the, I, I i tease a little bit the polyvagal science and i didn't know what polyvagal was it's a, it was invented by a guy named dr stephen porges in the mid 90s all i knew was I didn't go from this place of being happy to being sad, the way that you see in the commercials, right? What I was joking about with the with the cartoon commercials. What I felt was, I felt like I was thriving in a really good place. Then very simply, I felt like I was surviving. And then it felt like I was crashing, right? So those were the three places that I saw on my continuum, so to speak. So I was like, that doesn't sound like disorder. That sounds like states of mind shifting, of being in a good place, being in a eh place, and then literally being in a spiraling place out of control. So that realization sounded linear to me. I was like, <laughs> that's a buildup over time, like the plaque in the arteries. Why aren't we teaching it this way? So then I learned about polyvagal and I learned that these, these different phases of the nervous system, we go from this place of psychological flexibility where I'm in the parasympathetic response of my nervous system. I'm having a talk with my friends, Tyler and Riley. Things are good. Oh, shit. A car accident happened out there. I got to go help that person. Car accident gets taken care of. Person is okay. They get brought to the hospital. I find everything's right. I'm coming back and I'm having a conversation with Tyler and Riley. That's psychological flexibility. That's being able to be in the moment, take care of something volatile, then being back in the moment. Volatile, back in the moment. Volatile, back in the moment. When the volatility happens too often, eventually the nervous system goes, you're putting me on alert way too many times. And it can either be an event that keeps happening or it could be a thought, right? So Tyler, I know I keep using your story as an example, but it's relatable to everyone. Oh shit, I was in a bus accident. Cars can get into an accident. Planes can get into an accident. Other buses can get into an accident. Now, every time you're on the road, your mind is going, what happens if accident happens? What happens if accident happens? Our nervous system doesn't know the difference between the thought of a threat and the actual threat itself. So now we go from the state of psychological flexibility to now this over sympathetic response where it's like, I can't get out of my my own head. It feels like there's too many windows open on my computer. And then that explains the shutdown. Too many windows open. Now the system goes, you you need to do something to preserve your energy because if not, the whole system's going to fall apart. So it goes into that shutdown mode. So Riley, to your question, we took that and we put that across a six-point scale, thriving, gliding, surviving, fluctuating, struggling, sinking, and we put emojis on it. Why six places? Because the most common question we ask each other every single day is, hey, Riley, how are you doing? How, hey, Tyler, how, how are you doing? And the most common answer we give is, I'm all right, I'm okay, I'm fine, I'm eh, I'm meh, which is no answer whatsoever. It's a middle-of-the-road answer, right? If we give common language... The same way that we have a thermometer that goes in our mouth and you say, I'm 98.6, I'm normal. I'm 101, I've got a low-grade fever. I'm 103, I've got a high-grade fever. We needed that same language. And I, you know, I'll challenge you a little bit, Riley, to think back to being a kid. When you say you were happy, I was happy too when I was a kid. 
But if I had taught you the different places on that scale and the thoughts yeah. and behaviors that come in on those decent places, you wouldn't be able to describe that every single day you were thriving. For sure. You'd be able to describe scenarios where I'm in this fluctuating struggling piece where grandpa passed away or I didn't make the team that I thought I would, right? There's an accumulation of that over time, like that plaque in the arteries, that we're not giving the skills and the tools for kids, parents, teachers to understand that stuff. And if we're not giving them the tools, we're just going to keep repeating the same issues over and over again. And as technology's yeah. gotten faster and there's more demands on us, we have text messages and direct messages and emails and rapid fire. The nervous system can only take so much. So we need these tools now. So I hope that helped explain yeah. you why we, we implement the scale in schools is because we need a linear way to track that and see the trends over time. Yeah, no, that's, that's unreal. I think it's great. And I, I remember my dad, my dad still teaches part-time and he just spoke, he teaches teachers. So when they go back into the classroom, they have a higher up credit in phys ed or whatever it is. And they are just, he was just talking about for his elementary um, teachers, like stoplight, like red, green, yellow, and then if a kid lights up yellow or green or yellow or red, you just kind of know to have an extra eye on them or you, you know how to like focus on them a little more, talk to them a little more, maybe get them to express themselves a little more. And that's just developing those skills, right? As you grow older, I think I think it's really important. Um, but I'm going to change a topic here. Kind of going to go back to where we, what we were talking about a little bit before. But your, uh, your perspective, I always love seeing your posts and your perspective on the way articles are written and the words used and whether it's, I think the one that that sticks in my mind is Taylor Hawkins death. And, you know, he was, I think through the media, he was um, described as this party animal rocker, like another rocker dying because of abusing drugs for his wanting to party, whatever. But you had these quotes about how Taylor Hawkins is part of the Foo Fighters, one of the biggest rock bands of the 90s that that grunge era he hated performing like he didn't he didn't like being on stage um and you kind of broke it down in a way that was like holy shit like everybody is looking at this article in one way that this guy just blew his life away he had money he had fame but he blew his life away because he liked drugs he liked partying but there's such an alternative story that we all are blinded by because the media just puts it in our heads in a certain way like I don't know. Like, I, I don't know where my, what my question is, like your ability to see it in this way, where did that come from? I mean, obviously your story has a big influence, but like, it's just crazy that we're so blinded by this. I don't know if you can speak on we're, that. We're, we're blinded by it because, because there's powers that be that sell us on seeing it a different way. Right. There's, there's, and I, maybe I'll end up in a ditch after this, you know, um, <laughs> this podcast gets released because, you know, I say it enough times and eventually someone's going to come knocking on my door. But there's a lot of money to be made when let's use the 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 the, the, the Foo Fighters example specifically, right? So when you have this major drummer for this major band and the only narrative that comes out of it is druggy who partied right? That's its own category. The same way when Vincent Jackson dies in his hotel room, the, sh the brick shithouse of a wide receiver who played for uh, the, the Bucks, and they go, oh, well, 
you know, the 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 reports in the um, in, in the police reports from three years ago said that he was arrested on a DUI. He clearly was abusing alcohol. OK, so now you've got Foo Fighters, Party Animal, right? Addict. You've got Vincent Jackson. You've got DUI and alcoholic, right? OK, then you've got, um, you know, so many other examples of deaths that have happened to celebrities, right? And what happens is overdose, addiction, suicide, opioid. Listen to all these words that I'm sharing that the media claims are all different things, okay? This person died that way because they're a party animal. This person died that way because they had a death wish of overdosing. This person died this way because suicide was a choice that they made. That sounds like all different things and the media gets to get your eyeballs because when it sounds like different things, it's the bright, shiny object of what's the gossip around that that I need to find out because, ooh, that's really interesting. When you ask where do I come, where do I see it from, from a different angle is my mind, because I went through it and was treated in that same system and then realized, holy fuck, these are just different examples of the same thing. The guy who dies by suicide, the guy who dies by overdose, the guy who dies by cirrhosis of the liver, the guy who dies by being a, quote, alcoholic, they're all people who are escaping the emotional pain, that their death looks differently in the way that the media describes it. And then probably what you saw in in the latest post that I put out there is, how the hell is the CDC releasing a year and 11 months after the data was available that yeah. thirty that, that we were up 30% in deaths related to alcohol during the first year of the pandemic. We just realized this now? No, it's because they split up at the time in May of 2021, five months after those numbers came in. They told us that suicide was flat year over year from 2020 to 2019, trying to sell to us that the pandemic didn't impact people's mental health. And by the way, again, back to not being political with this stuff. I'm not trying to say, well, it was the lockdowns that different. Take, take the measures out of it. I'm talking about merely living through a friggin' pandemic. They're going to try to convince us that people's mental health wasn't impacted. One, that wasn't true about suicides because they put suicides in a vacuum by itself. Two, if mental health is cumulative, looking just at the numbers, the year of the fir- first year of the pandemic is not going to tell you the full story because you're going to see more and more people dropping, sadly, two years and three years later. But here's the bigger, more direct point. They separated from six months out what the suicide numbers were year over year. And then six months later, they tell you what the overdose rates number, which when you combine those two, suicide and overdose, it was the highest on record of those two ever. In 2020, the first year of the pandemic. But we don't hear that because they're separated by six months that they're released. So when I see the alcohol deaths, which are released now a year and 11 months after they're, they're not even including in alcohol deaths people who overdosed, let's say, right? Because they mixed drugs with alcohol and they were – they're talking about literally physically cirrhosis of the liver and all that stuff. All these yeah. things that people did are all different forms of the same thing. Back to Theo and I maybe give him more credit than, uh, than most people. But he calls it – it's all cousins living in the same house. But because it's cousins, people think of them as different families, They're all living in the same house, all part of the same thing. And we as a society have to get together and go, 
It's psychological pain from the trauma that we live through. And we're all trying to deal with it in different ways, maladaptive ways. And so we die in different ways prematurely. But guess what? The core issue at the same is we're all going through a ton of shit and don't know how to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know what? I, uh, Riles, we are, I have another question for sure, but Riles, we got to get him on for another episode anyways, because <laughs> we have, uh, we have taken a, a bunch of your time, Eric. And I, I, but I have another question. Um, you have had a tremendous amount of powerful conversations, whether it's the families of the college athletes that we have lost to suicide, whether it's your influencer Alliance members, um, you know, Hayden Hurst, uh, Whoever it may be, I mean, you've had a tremendous, tremendous amount of powerful, powerful conversations from a wide variety of situations and environments that these individuals have come from and and been able to get through. And um, but what is it? What it like? I, I read your one caption, and I know that the families of the college athletes. It seems as though every one of those families wants to reaffirm one thing, and we're a team. And that we need to be a team. But all of these conversations you've had, is there, a, is there a, a major message that you have just come to terms with that it's just like, this is it. It's going to take a long time to get there. It's going to take a lot of hard work. But truly, it's an open-ended question. But Eric, what is it? Mental health has become a business. It was a business before I ever got into it. And I didn't know until I then started peeking under the hood. And I don't know that it gets better until people drop the ego and are willing to hold hands and work together. And there's attempts at it. I'm not going to mention the specific names, but this, this coalition, that, that coalition, right? Then you look at like what their individual campaigns are during May's Mental Health Awareness Month. And like, they're not even sharing each other's stuff, right? Like, it's like they might put it in each other's Instagram story or something like that. There's no consistency in the message. And in a topic that's this nuanced, that has been promoted to us in the opposite way that we need to understand it. The only way it changes is consistency. So where does that leave me? And and, and why do I like working with the Rileys of the world and bring people together? Because I know they're going to be doing their own things, right? Everyone is ambitious and wanting to do their own things. But what I've been spending the last four years doing is going, all these big nonprofits out there, they all have their own MO Right. Like I'm going to throw something out there and it's controversial, but I'm going to say it. When we lose someone to mass shootings, why is every executive director of every single nonprofit coming out there and going, this had nothing to do with mental health? It's disingenuous and wrong. And we are hurting society by saying that. Uh, Can't you say in the same sentence that people who deal with major mental health challenges are less likely to be the perpetrator of crimes, then um, be be in a cr- crime themselves, be a victim of a crime, and at the same time go, unfortunately, in this particular case, to shoot up 20 kids, that person was dealing with something very major that impacted their mental health where they weren't seeing the world in a rational place. Why do they not say that, if you think about it for a second? They don't say it because their donor bases are the people who believe in that old school model of let's protect the people who have this designation of mentally ill. And if we tell people this has nothing to do with this mental illness thing, as it's been defined before, guess what? More people will keep donating to us because we're protective of that group. 
that doesn't get society better. So I'm willing to raise my hand and go, guess what? Even though you all support us to the tune of thousands of people on the social media channels and you ask us to come out to events, this is unfortunately part of, not saying the whole reason, part of why we have mass shootings is because we're not dealing with the core issue of people's mental health. And that contributes to this. If that makes people not donate to us who are looking at the old model of the mental illness only model, I'm okay with that because I'm moving the narrative forward that we all need to work together to how do we support these people who end up in these places because they're not given the tools or not given the reason. I'm not trying to make them sympathetic figures. What I'm trying to say is we have ails in society that we're not cleaning up because there's a gravy train in money that comes around by not talking about it the right way. So I know I give long answers to short questions. I, I apologize for that, but like, it, their nuanced answers is the only way we get better is if we hold hands and we say, this topic applies to all of us. There's not a person who's immune to it. It fluctuates up and down throughout the course of our lives. We all need to work on it. And here's the skills and the drills and the tools that we need in order to learn to work on it. Oh, by the way, that happened with physical health in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Why the hell can't we do it with mental health? Yeah. I, I hope we will get there some way, but <laughs> right now we're not there. <laughs> yeah. And so, think so about the like best- the, the, it's like the tension relief there. Like even when you say that, if that was like ingrained in your mind, knowing that like you could be more un, like understood and you could actually speak and you could feel comfortable, like, I don't know, just relieve so much tension and then compound on that, like pushing all of the natural ways we can feel better, whether like, like the integrative stuff or breathing and just physical health, the importance of nutrition, all of those things can go such a long way. So it's, I mean, even like just when you said that, well, like it well, just, you, you talked about, you me. talked about terminology, Riley, right? What do we call yeah. all the natural things? What are the terms that have been yeah, used like, to call those? It's like, things? like if you Eastern do yoga, you're like. holistic alternative, <laughs> right? It's, yeah. it's the foremost bastardized terms. We, we came up with the term star exercises, stress and trauma, active releasing and rewiring. It's a gym for your brain so that they can't commandeer a word that's already been out there. Let's make a new word that they don't get to own. Right. And let's put the science behind it and put it out there so that people can't take ownership of it. So you, you probably, Tyler, in answering your question, you hear a little bit of the frustration in my voice because the answers are there. Yeah. And I, I'm not trying to make it simple like, oh, you snap your finger and you feel better. But if people understood it's a linear build, I work on it. I try to get it back to a place of pre-trauma, pre-stress. It's just like an ankle where when I turn it, it's never going to be fully back to that tight ligament tendon connection in my bones and my muscles the way that it was before. But I could rehab it back to a good place. Then there would be no shame in talking about it like Riley just said. Like I And Riley, I even, when you share that, I, I heard the pain in your voice a little bit. I hope you don't mind me calling it out in a, <laughs> no. in a, in a, in a collaborative way. I guess because and, – and Tyler, you might feel this. When you go out on stage enough times – and you share your truth, you don't give a fuck what anyone thinks anymore, right? Now, it's harder for you because you're an NHL player, and so you've got the issue of there's a lot more fans than there are just people in the, in the stands when we go talk, right? And you're also dealing with contracts, and you're also dealing with an image of how people think athletes are supposed to be. So you've got a lot of factors working against you. But what I can encourage everyone with, and Tyler, you can you can back me on this if you, if you agree with it, is – 
once you get over the point where you don't give a shit anymore, it's the most freeing fucking feeling in the world. <laughs> and I don't care what, I don't care if I'm on, you know, uh, a, a news station versus a, a morning show versus a podcast versus someone's Instagram live that there's 10 people on. I get to just yeah. say whatever the fuck is on my mind and what I feel. And I don't care if people judge it. It's awesome. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Yeah, I think even like with Riley and I, like being able to, you know, get comfortable being uncomfortable. I, I like that was obviously our original model and that will always be our model. But I think now it's just a case of obviously our relationship has grown, but it's just a case of this is it, you know, like we're doing what we love and this is our passion now. And whatever we say, like, that's it. Like, this is our podcast. We're allowed to speak your mind. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's a perfect way to end, Eric. I uh, I was really looking forward to this one because I've, I've followed you for a while. And um, for any of our listeners still with us, I mean, please, please, please follow um, the same here, Global Mental Health Movement. I mean, just the um, what Eric covers in his posts and the captions and how articulate he goes into it. I mean, it's it's altered my perspective in a, in a beneficial way. And I think it, it will do the same for you. Um, so Eric, please continue to do what you do because you're an amazing, amazing human being. And um, I just, uh, I think on, on behalf of Riley and I, I think we just, uh, we are going to have you on again for sure. But for now, I mean, thank you so much for, for your insight um, for, and just for, you know, being candid and being able to have this conversation today. And, and I'll, I'll let you guys end on, you know, I think it's awesome to have two male figures, sports background, who are willing to have the uncomfortably comfortable or comfortably uncomfortable, however you say it, conversation. <laughs> it's not on many platforms. A lot of the guys talking, they try to pair a male with a female to, you know, soften up the tone a little bit or have a licensed clinical you know, professional that's along with it, giving the, 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 you know, specific science behind things. When it's two guys just shooting the shit and, and, and being open, it makes people listen and be like, that's conversational. So you guys should be very proud of what you're doing. That's awesome. This episode is also brought to you by BioSteel. Zero sugar, essential electrolytes, great taste and pure hydration. Join the likes of Connor McDavid, Alec Manoa, Andrew Wiggins, Brooke Henderson, and Patrick Mahomes on the BioSteel train. It's time for you to try BioSteel with our SYM25 discount code that will get you 25% off at checkout. Yep, that's right. I will gladly attest to this being the best hydration drink on the market. SYM25 at checkout.